0: is wise, the one who learns from others. Join me in a journey where I speak to Jewish women from all different backgrounds, each sharing their own stories, struggles, and successes. Be a part of a community where you connect to something greater than yourself. I'm your host, Karen Koren, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Hey everyone, welcome to season two, episode one of Soul Sessions. I'm so excited to be back because I have a lineup of amazing guests for you. These are fascinating Jewish women from all walks of life. And my first guest, she will blow your minds. She's the one and only Rachel Tuckman. And if you haven't heard of her, you are living under a rock because she is making waves. Rachel is a licensed mental health counselor with over 10 years of experience. She's worked with diverse populations such as incarcerated women at Rikers Island Correctional Facility, kids and adults with developmental delays, children with behavioral issues, overwhelmed parents looking for skills and support, teens struggling with the pressures of adolescence and life in general, adults going through difficult life circumstances, and women experiencing infertility which is what this show will mainly be about she currently offers services in her Cedarhurst, new york office and she also does speaking engagements for schools synagogues and various community organizations i am so excited to present rachel because what you will be hearing is not only educational but it's extremely empowering but first a word from our sponsor This week's podcast is sponsored by Rugshook.com. That's R-U-G-S-H-O-O-K.com. Rugshook is an affordable, direct-to-consumer, hand-knotted rug company specializing in wool and silk oriental and modern designs from Persia, Afghanistan, Nepal, China, and India. The difference with Rugshook is that for the larger pieces, if there's a rug you like, but you're not sure if it's going to look nice in your room, all you have to do is just take a picture of your room and they will render the rug into your room. How cool is that? Their customer service is incredible and will not rest until they help you find the perfect rug for your home, apartment, or office. Prices are unbeatable. And if you use the promo code SOULTRAIN20, you will receive an additional 20% discount off your entire order. This promo is active for a limited time, so check out their website rugshook.com and add Spark to your dwellings. And now, I would like to introduce Rachel Tuckman. Hey, Rachel.
1: Hey, thanks Thank for you having me today.
0: so much for being on the show. It's been such a long time that I wanted you to speak not only to me, but to everybody, to all the listeners, to share your story about how you became a mental health counselor, but also your struggles in different areas. So my experience on Instagram, it has dramatically improved since mm. I started following you two years ago.
1: Thank you. Good, good.
0: Really, Baruch Hashem. I have no doubt that you not only influence the way I think, but you influence the way so many people think about mental health, and you're really doing a fantastic job breaking stigmas. So all the power to you, Rachel. Thank
1: Thank you. you, (laughs) Amin.
0: Of course. So I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to become a mental health counselor?
1: Um, So, I mean, it's always kind of been my personality that I like was interested in people and loved helping and listening. And I always kind of like understood people um, in a way that, that was always noticed. People would always kind of say like, wow, it's you really get it. And you have this, like, this kind of like knack for understanding what people are going through. And I always was like someone who had a lot of empathy. Um, So I always knew I wanted to do something like helping people Um, when I was a kid, I really wanted to be a lawyer. Like that was my thing. I wanted to be an attorney. That was kind of how I wanted to help people. I thought it was like such a glamorous, cool job. Um, and then I guess as I got older, it just kind of shifted to wanting to help wanting to support people. Um, and I say this a lot, it actually came from like a pretty unhealthy place. Like I felt like I wanted to like fix people and fix the world and change people and make people happy. Like I thought that that's, like what the role of a therapist was, but the more um, I was in school and the more I learned and the more in practice I was, the more I, you know, did my internships and, and, you know, clinical training and all that, I realized like, not at all about fixing people. And it's not at all about making people happy. It's about sitting with people while they figure out how they're going to make themselves happy. And what they're going to do to make their lives better. And that a lot of the people that are in therapy don't need fixing. Like they're not broken, you know, they're just mm-hmm. coming to you because they have things that they need to sort out themselves, need to figure out. Um, so, so that's kind of, that's how I got into it um, from maybe like an unhealthy space, but it kind of became a very healthy thing for me. Like I really grew a lot also learning to let go of trying to make people better and. Fix people's them. lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, yeah, my training. You know, just realizing like what what being a therapist is all about. It's not about changing people. It's about just holding space for them while they figure out what they want to do for themselves. You know, and accepting them unconditionally.
0: Right. I feel like that's a common misconception of therapists that they're trying to change you and fix you. Do you feel like in the beginning of your practice that's the way you went about? You know holding your sessions with people?
1: So thankfully, I was not in private practice when I was thinking that way. So I was really like working in clinical settings where I had supervisors. So I wasn't really able to think, to, to behave that way. You know, so I always had a supervisor who was like, you know, that's not the goal, Rachel. Like, this is how we approach the problem. And, you know, so I, I learned like through the process, like, oh, okay, I was thinking I needed to approach the case this way, but you're telling me I need to approach it that way. And that's why I think supervision is that's why supervision is so important. When you are a therapist, you need to have someone who you're going back to and talking about, you know, whatever you're working on. You need to have that sounding board where someone is objective and says like, "All right, that's interesting, but like what about this approach or what about that approach?" So that you know that you're not putting your own biases, your own stuff into your client's particular case. That's you know, so, so you really got to be super careful with that.
0: Right. Right. So, you know, many of us think that in order to be successful in our professions, that we need to perfect our personal life first. So, like, Mm -hmm. if someone's a marriage counselor, they think their marriage has to be, like, perfect, no problems. Do you think that needs to happen before you hold space for others or when you give advice to others? And, like, feeling like you don't have imposter syndrome.
1: Okay. So, I mean, those are two separate things. So in terms of like being perfect and having your life all together in order to be an effective therapist, I, I don't think that's true. I think that, um, you need to be aware of what your issues are so that you're not projecting them onto your clients. So I would say if someone is a marriage therapist and maybe they're going through a difficult time in their marriage currently, then I would say maybe they should take a break from working because I would be wary myself. Like, I don't want to be projecting my stuff onto my client. I don't want to be, you know, thinking about my situation versus their situation. I would worry that it would kind of like taint my objectivity if I was currently going through difficult things. But to say like, you know, I don't want to go to that marriage therapist because they're divorced. Like that's silly. You can have amazing clinical skills and tons of knowledge and you know be like a super therapist and not really have your life together and I always say that the whole like thing about being a therapist is like we fix other people's lives so we don't have to fix our own right we can like avoid our problems by dealing with yours it's like the joke but like it's kind of they always say that's why therapists go into therapy so that they don't have to look at themselves they could just fix you and ignore themselves which is not true but on some level you know I think it kind of starts out that way. Like I don't feel good about myself, so I want to fix other people, right? Which is kind of where I was coming from. Like I feel broken, so I want to make everyone else feel better and I want to make everyone else happy. That people pleaser. That I need to make everyone else's life complete because mine feels so yucky, you know. So you got to be aware of that. Like if that's where you're coming from, then you have to know what your issues are. So for me, like I give a lot of parenting stuff. I do a lot of, you know, sessions with parents and and teaching them to become more conscious parents, more aware, more sensitive, teaching them how to properly manage behaviors with kids. And I am far from a perfect parent. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure if my kid were sitting here right now, she would be emphatically like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, if you saw my mom, you would never bring your kid to her. Like, what you know? Right. But I'm like a work in progress. But I know, in theory, I know all the right things to do. And I know what works. But when it comes to my own life, like I'm, I'm a human. I'm emotional. I have my baggage. Like I'm not clear-headed. I'm not putting on the therapist cap. I'm not removed. So that's something important to remember. Like mm-hmm. your therapist is a human before they're a therapist, and they make mistakes and they're not perfect. But I, it really what matters is what goes on in the room. Do you feel like they know what they're talking about? Do you feel like they have professional boundaries? Do you feel like they're knowledgeable? Are they sharing about their marriage issues with you in your sessions? Like if they are, then that's a good indicator that they're probably not such a great therapist, you know, if it doesn't have much to do with what you're going through, Um, you know, and then imposter syndrome is really, that's something that I think every professional experiences at some point or every person um, and that's kind of when, like, I have this a lot before I do speaking things, is when you kind of start, like, doubting yourself, like, why would anyone listen to me? I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's so much, you know, people are, like, so much more knowledgeable than me. Like, what if they think I'm, like, making it up? And, you know, it's, we get this, like, self-consciousness and nervousness that, like, we're not as smart or as knowledgeable as we are, you know? Right. Um And the answer to that, I always say, is like, I just ignore it. Like, I'm like, okay, you know, right now I'm feeling insecure and I'm feeling, you know, nervous and I'm feeling like stressed out. But like, I know what I'm talking about. I've done this before. Like, this is my life. This is my work. I do this every day. I... I know what I'm doing. And even if I don't know what I'm doing, I still know a little bit more than the audience that I'm talking to, you know? So if I was speaking to, you know, Harvard, PhDs and whatever, maybe I could be like, shoot, like, I'm the dummy in the room, you know? But if I'm speaking to just regular people, like, I know what I'm doing, you know? And I don't have to be nervous and I don't have to like doubt myself, you know? Right. So, you know, you give that pep talk and, you know, imposter syndrome doesn't mean that you're an imposter. It just means you feel like it and that's okay. Feelings are not.
0: can therapists share their struggles with their clients and where like where does it come from can they share after the fact or can it happen during their struggle what's appropriate
1: so a therapist should only be it's called it's called self-disclosure so a therapist should only be using self-disclosure when it's helpful to the client and it and it's something that will enhance their experience in therapy so if I'm going to share a story about something that I dealt with because I feel like it will make you feel more supported or give you a different perspective about how to handle things, then I'll share that. If I'm sharing it just because I want to talk about myself or because I need a vent, that's a problem. So a therapist always needs to check themselves before they disclose, like, what's the purpose of this and will this be helpful? Right. That's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that you don't necessarily have to be fully healed. It could be something that maybe is still um present in your life, but that it's not something that's still hurtful and raw and, and triggers a lot of emotion in you. Because again, you're not coming from a place that will be helpful. Then I would kind of doubt the, the purpose of sharing, like, I'd be a little bit worried. Are you sharing this for, you know, your client? Or is there something that, it's making you feel better to talk about it. And we're not supposed to be about ourselves at all in therapy. You are there for your client 100%. It's not about the therapist at all. And that's why therapy is so amazing. It's someone who's there for you 100%. It's not about anyone else but you. So when it becomes about the therapist also, that's a problem. That's
0: you know? interesting. So we need to
1: really check ourselves and say like, what's the purpose of this? And do am I doing this? Because I think it will be helpful to my client.
0: It reminds me of this whole conversation that's going on about how people on social media, where they're sharing from, are they sharing from a place of insecurity? Are they sharing because they just want to get attention or they want to feel good about themselves or are they sharing from a place of connection that they really want to help people? Um, So thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's an amazing, you know, quality that a therapist needs to have.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think everyone should kind of think about that also before you share, especially on social media. Why am I doing that? Am I trying to like, Brene Brown calls it like hot wire connection. Like, am I trying to speed up, like making mm-hmm. people feel like I'm so relatable and so personable and I'm so open and whatever, or am I doing this because I feel like, this needs to be spoken about and people need to understand like that this is an issue or this is important or you know this is something that needs further discussion not even specific to me like I'll bring it up that I went through this but I'm going to take the focus off of me now and the focus is going to be more on the issue itself you know Mm -hmm. so we need to think about that I think yeah I think a lot of people then start sharing because they think like they're going to be so relatable and so like awesome and so open and oh I feel like I know you and but that's not necessarily a good thing, and that's that's not um, that's not being you know that's not sharing out of a good space. That's that's oversharing, and that's not respecting your privacy, and that's crossing boundaries. And it's there's so many authentic. different issues. It's it's completely the opposite of authentic, um, and it just creates a lot of issues. And I, especially if you're sharing something that you know has other people involved, you know, like did you get their permission to share? Like, do they want you sharing that experience? You know, you have to be sensitive to the other people that are involved in whatever it is you're sharing if they want that story all over social media or whatever it is, you That's know. True. But I think that sometimes social media facilitates like impulsivity and lack of thought. And, um, For sure. you know, people aren't really taking the time to think about what they post before they post it.
0: That's so, it's untrue. Yeah. Yeah. So, Rachel, you've been open in the past about. A particular struggle that you had, and mm-hmm. we're talking about um, infertility. Yes. Yeah. So can you share your story with us?
1: Sure. Um, so I experienced something called unexplained secondary infertility, which is um, when you have, you've had been able to have one child naturally, and for no apparent reason, you can't have more. So, I mean, it could be you have one or two or three, no problem, and then suddenly you can't have. So it's just, you were able to conceive before and then suddenly you can't. So in my case, I had one. And then when I wanted to have another one, I couldn't, I wasn't getting pregnant. Um, took me a really long time to accept the fact that I might need further medical intervention besides just going to my OB. Um, And, you know, he kept suggesting, like, I think you should go with a fertility specialist. Like, you know, nothing's happening and you're young. I was 24 years old. You know, I was 26 years old, I should say. Um, And he was like, you know, like you're young, but like, it doesn't make sense that it's not happening. You know, if you had one and it was pretty quick, like, this, you know, makes me concerned. But I was like, Nah, I'm not. I'm like just going to keep trying. And like, uh, there's nothing wrong with me. And it's not possible. You know, how is that possible? that like You have one and you don't have another. Like, right. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as secondary infertility.
0: Or even like um, after your third child or some people have it after yeah. four kids.
1: Yeah. I didn't like, I didn't know that it was possible for your fertility to just change like that. Um, so especially cause like, I didn't make any lifestyle changes. I wasn't like smoking. Like I didn't, I was just like, a, if anything, I was like exercising and I was just like a, a really together, normal, you know, I wasn't engaging in any behaviors that I felt like, oh, that would make sense that that's why I'm not, you know, that's why fertility is affected. Like nothing was different in my life. So I really was in denial. And then finally, after it was probably really like a year and a half, um, I was like, okay, like I want to have a kid. My my oldest is, you know, my my first is not getting any younger. She's getting older. She's asking a lot. I need to go see someone. Um, and so he referred me to a great practice, and I saw this doctor for. I went through six cycles of treatment, um, and it was my last cycle of treatment that worked. And I was I was going to give up after that that sixth one. He said like, if this doesn't work we're going to have to talk about more invasive procedures. At the time I was doing just um, injectable drugs. So I was just giving myself shots and, you know, we tried Clomid. Clomid didn't work. Sorry.
0: Was this IVF?
1: No, we didn't do IVF.
0: It was just injectable. First he gave me
1: an oral drug that called Clomid. And like, that's supposed to just like, kind of um, help you create more eggs. Um, And so I did that and that didn't work. Then I did something called an intrauterine insemination which is, you know, you go into the, into the um, doctor's office and they inject you with, with your husband's sperm in the office. Super, like, romantic and amazing that yeah. no one ever. Um, right. And that didn't work. And then, and with all that, again, I was doing, like, injectable cycles. So I was, you know, getting shots and, and taking fertility medications to, like, give me bigger eggs and help me, you know, ovulate on time at the right time and increase my chances. And finally, at the last cycle, um, we, we did six of them. And in my sixth cycle, he said, you know, he's like, if this doesn't work, we're going to have to, like, change up our treatment protocol because this isn't working. And I was like, well, like, I don't want to do anything else. Like, I feel I'm doing so much already. Like, I don't, thankfully, my insurance covered everything at that point. Um, but he was like, you know, we should think about IVF. I did not want to spend that kind of money, um, and I was just, like, giving up, essentially. I was like, All right, well, if this doesn't work, like, I guess I'll have one, and, like, I'll just, you know, like, change my life plan, like, write a new story that I have one kid my whole life, Um, and it was that cycle, actually, that worked, um, so then... So then I had my second, thank God, and she was adorable and delicious and amazing. And then I knew I knew this was always gonna be my thing. Like if I want to have more kids, like it's not gonna happen naturally for me. I'm I'm not gonna be one of those stories that like, oh, and then she's surprised, got pregnant, like right. it's just not happening for me for whatever reason. And again, like they didn't even know why. Like it looked like my eggs, you know, I had eggs, but the quality was fine, my husband didn't have any issues, like they really couldn't figure it out. Um anything that they could test for, like was not coming back negative, you know? So like, I didn't, they didn't know exactly what it was, which is like a frustrating Sorry. diagnosis to have. But then at the same time, sometimes it's like reassuring. Cause then it's like, well, if we don't know what's wrong, then like, you know, maybe the chances are better that you'll have success, you know, but then there's the flip side of, well, if we don't want know what's wrong, we don't know what's to fix. So it was just like, kind of like, I didn't want to focus on the diagnosis so much. I was just like, whatever it is, what it is. And I'm just going to try until I feel like I can't try anymore. And that's it. You know, like I, I have to just do my part. Um, so I always knew that fertility would be a thing. And then when I wanted to have another one, we did the same treatment protocol as we did to have my second and it wasn't working. And, you know, my doctor was like, I don't want to do as many cycles. You know, it's a lot to be putting into you. Like, you know, again, we should think about different, different treatment. Um, and this time, I was very resistant to IVF, but I was like, you know, whatever. Like, I, I want another child. Like, I'm, I'm just going to do it. Um, and so I did an you IVF, did IVF cycle. Yeah, I uh-huh. did. I actually did two cycles. The first one was successful, but like around like the 11-week mark, we found it was not related to like a genetic issue. It was just a developmental issue. The baby wasn't healthy, and they told me it wasn't going to survive the pregnancy. All right. So that so that didn't work out and that was very emotional and very difficult for me. Um, and I had a lot of like you know issues with God and and anger and whatever at the time um, and then you know so then that pregnancy ended and then I did another IVF shortly after because I had frozen eggs so I didn't have to pay all over again. it was just a frozen cycle which is much cheaper um, and so then they just transferred the frozen egg and then thank God I got pregnant again and I had my third. Wow. Um, and then I said I'm like never doing this again like this is my family I'm sticking with it like I'm I'm done you know like I, I'm happy with what I have and everyone's healthy and happy and that's all I can ask for Um, and you know but it I, I remember like going through it way back in the beginning before I had my second I always like there was no one to talk to there was no one who spoke about this stuff like I didn't know any organizations I didn't know anyone who was going through it I was so young I certainly didn't know anyone who had a kid and then couldn't have. I knew people that didn't have, but like they don't want to talk to me. They're gonna be like, "You have a kid. I don't I, want to speak to you." Or that's what you're... I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I thought at the time. Um, but I felt so alone, and I remember thinking, like, when I get through this, like when it's all said and done, like I'm gonna talk about it and I'm gonna be a voice and I'm gonna implement it into my practice, like because I had always wanted to work with like kids and families. Like I didn't necessarily want to do I didn't want to work with infertility. I didn't even think about it. But when this happened, I said, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a voice in the Jewish community that people can come to me and know that I'll speak to them and know that I'll help them and know that I'll be a resource. Because it's crazy that no one here talks about it.
0: Right.
1: Why do Um, you think
0: that is, Rachel?
1: There's a lot of shame (laughs) involved in infertility. It's a very, I mean, if you think about what it is to have a child, it's related to a very private and intimate thing, right? Right. Having sex with your husband or with your wife, like it's a very private, you know, personal thing. So you feel like talking about it is kind of like letting people into your bedroom, you know? Also, a lot of people feel like they are a failure because their body is failing them. You know, they relate it to like, well, it must be my fault you know, which kind of, I think, gives people a sense of control, like, if you blame yourself, then you feel like you can control your, your fertility, like, when really, it has nothing to do with you, you can't blame yourself, this is not something that you can control, you know, for the most part, yeah. um, so I think that that's, a lot of that is, you know, again, we're also a very family-centric religion, we're, yeah. All about kids, we're all about family. That is the purpose, right? You get married, you know, we say have a family, like that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of shame when you can't do that and you're not doing it, and you know, you feel judged and you feel left out. And you know, a lot of holidays are all about kids, so if you don't have, you shouldn't even show up to school, you shouldn't show up at the table, you're just going to feel bad about yourself, and you're going to have nothing. You know, this is how, I'm not saying that this is the case. I'm saying this is how you're going to feel. You're going to feel like, what's the point of me being there? Like, I don't have a kid, you know? So we kind of like leave people out a little bit. You know, we do this also to people who are single,
0: Yeah. you know, like
1: they're left out because if you don't have a spouse or you don't have kids, like sometimes there's not a space for you. It feels like that. So we really need to be more sensitive and aware of being more inclusive in these times, you know, Pesach time when, with, the, with Manish Tana, you know, and, and yeah. Torah, you know, when it's about all the kids and dancing with the Torah, like we need to think about that for people.
0: Right. Right. Uh I mean, what, what can you tell women who are surrounded by all of this? What, what can they do? I mean, in order to maybe feel better about their circumstance or, Should they surround themselves with other people who are struggling? Like what can they do when they're surrounded by all of this baby talk and child-centered activities?
1: So, I mean, you need like a good support network. It's important that if you have a friend that you can open up to and tell that you're going through this, that you do that because then they'll be aware of like controlling the baby talk and making conversations, not just about kids and schools and carriages and diapers and nursing and whatever it is you know, that they'll be more aware that you have adult conversation that doesn't center around that. Um, if you feel like you don't want to be at a table with people who only talk about their kids, or you don't want to go to school, because you know, it's going to be all that like, then don't go, you know, you're allowed to if you want to skip a certain family event, because, you know, you're going to feel pressured, or people are going to make comments or whatever it is, you can do that. Sometimes you can stay home for a if if you don't want to be faced with the questions and the shame and the hurt and whatever it is, you have to take care of yourself. Um, And it's not so black and white, you know, but a support network is big. Go to therapy. If you don't feel like there's a friend that you can confide in, find a support group. There's so many around like Yashikva has and a time has on the phone that you can call in and it's confidential. You don't even have to speak if you don't want you just listen while other people speak or a moderator speaks. There is so much more now out there. There's
0: Pua. Um, and there's PUA
1: yes there's there's so much in terms of getting support um so I'm gonna list all these
0: organizations when I post this on yeah people can see that there's a big support group you know know? yeah definitely
1: for loss there's nechama comfort for for loss there's so much out there now that wasn't there you know even 10 years ago wasn't even so known like it was there but it was so quiet nobody talked about it now we know so much more there's bone for financial assistance if you do want to get treatment you know there's just a lot out there that so can be helpful to you right so, so so definitely that like just taking care of yourself and and talking to someone you know opening up to someone that you trust
0: yeah yeah otherwise it's a very very lonely experience and it's even more daunting than what it is already yeah.
1: The loneliness just compounds the shame. It just makes you feel more like isolated and more, you know, the suffering just feels more intense. You know, when you share it with someone and you kind of hand it to someone so that they can, you know, hold a little bit of it for you. It just feels lighter. You know, it doesn't make it better. It just feels more manageable. So it's just important.
0: Right. Yeah. So I can't imagine that while you were going through this, you know, very difficult and challenging process that it took a toll on you emotionally and mentally. And it also had an impact on your family life. And how did it impact you while you were a therapist? You know, how are you able to sit there for other people when you were going through this really painful experience of your own?
1: Right. So, I mean, at the time I was not working with women with infertility, so you know, I knew that I was not in a space to work with them, but I was actually working in a jail setting at the time. It was like my first job out of college, out of grad school. So I was working in a jail. Oh
0: my god, and, you're so poor, <laughs> Yeah.
1: And literally every week, I'm not exaggerating, a woman would come in, you know, picked up for drugs or prostitution or whatever, and she'd be like eight months pregnant. And I'd be Ooh. like, Really, God? Like, really, God? Yeah. And the doctor just asked me today to like have two cups of coffee instead of three maybe that's why I'm not getting pregnant, but this lady who has no teeth is pregnant, like, mm-hmm. seriously, you know, so it was really challenging for me, and I would be very angry, and I couldn't, like, they would leave my office, and I, I just couldn't, like, think straight, and I couldn't focus, Um, and that was part of, like, what led me to realize, like, I couldn't be in that job anymore, it was, it was too much for me, like, I couldn't contain my emotions, I would cry on the way home from work, I would cry on the way to work, like, I couldn't, I was just so angry and sad and, and like not present, you know, I would just, I was like, you know, filling out the paperwork, but not even there. And, yeah. um, it was really affecting me emotionally. Like I couldn't be who I needed to be as a therapist. So, um, I eventually left the job. Um, and then shortly after that's when I was, you know, when I got pregnant with my second, and but, um, on
0: yourself more, taking time yeah. for yourself.
1: Yeah. yeah. And just, like, not, you know, just, it was just a better, just better for me not to be, fa- like, faced with that every single day. It just wasn't good for me to feel so angry at the world and at life and at God and at, you know, people who needed my help. Like, I just, I, I didn't feel good about who I was becoming. So okay. I, I really had to, like, get out of there. Um, and so I did, you know. But
0: And what about in, it's definitely in Sorry? Like, what about with your own family, like with your husband and your, your daughter? How, how did you deal with them?
1: So, um, I, I, in the beginning I would be like angry at my husband, you know, I would be like, why aren't you more sad? And why aren't you upset? And why don't, why aren't you devastated like I am? And, and he'd be like, I am, but like, I don't have to deal with it the same way you, you do like, okay, I'm, I'm upset that this didn't work out, but like you know, his personality. And I think sometimes men in general, it's like, okay, it didn't work. Like what now, you know, like, what are we going to do next? Where I felt like I needed to sit in it and feel bad about myself and be angry and be, you know, so my, I was interpreting his, like, not wanting to sit in that sadness and anger and, and jealousy and whatever else as like not caring. But he, he was like, that's not how I function. That's not helpful to me. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to be disappointed and sad, but I also want to figure out like, What are we doing to make this better, if anything, you know, so that's what I started to do is I started to like kind of adopt his philosophy on things and do things differently so that I would feel less um, angry and sad you know? And I tried to really like keep emotions under control for my daughter's sake. Like I didn't want her to think ever that like, I wasn't happy that I just had her. I didn't want her to feel, have a complex of like, oh, my email always wanted more. Like I wasn't good enough. So I would really just, you know, like keep things, you know, like I just wouldn't talk about it. And when she would ask like, can I, I want a sister or I want a brother, I would say like, you know, that would be so nice, but like I love spending time with you and, and you could daven for that. If that's what you want, but like, you're so special and you're so fun and you know, and that would be so nice, but right now it's just us. And that's okay. You know, but it was hard. It's hard when your kid wants something that you also want. It's so hard when oh, it makes it more painful, you know?
0: Sure. Infertility is something that's discussed in the Tanakh. It's, we see it with Sarah, Menu, Rachel, we even see with Hannah. And mm-hmm. we see the Torah doesn't shy away from the subject. And we usually find that with prayer and patience, eventually our mothers were blessed with having children. So do you believe that our tradition has the answer to the infertility struggle and is prayer enough?
1: Um, so I think that I think prayer is a beautiful thing. I think a lot of the time we get confused about what the purpose of prayer is. I think that some people think like praying like changes like God and changes what he wants, but in reality like it's supposed to change us, you know? Right. So when you're davening and you're asking for something or whatever it is, like there's something in you that is supposed to change, like you're connecting and you're being more humble and maybe you're gaining perspective and Maybe you're thinking about how your prayer should change. Maybe, you know, you stop shifting from like, can I have another child to just like, whatever it is, Hashem, like help me to learn to accept it and help me to like have a full heart and be at peace with whatever it is that you give to me, you know? So it becomes something that changes us. So I do believe in the power of prayer, but not to influence God. We can't do that. Yeah. But it's to influence us to be different people, to be more connected to ourselves to our religion to Hashem so I feel like sometimes when we when we do that and we tell people like oh you need to more or oh try this thing for you know 40 days or try that thing for 15 days or whatever it is yeah. I think that creates a lot of guilt and shame for people that like they're not doing enough religiously and that's why they don't have a child and I don't believe that that's how Hashem works I don't believe he goes through a checklist every day of like did you do this did you do that mm, no kids for you sorry yeah, that's not how he works. Like, that's not a religion I would want to be a part of. That's not a god I would want to connect to. So I just don't think that that's helpful. I think mm-hmm. that that we should focus more on like what prayer does for us as people, and that if you do want to dive in more, you know, because you feel like, you know, that might bring you to a space where one day, you know, that Hashem does you know say like yeah now it's the time like this is you know this was my plan and and the time is here maybe it helps you to be more patient till you get to that time I would say 100 percent um but I just don't I just feel like when we do that and when we say like oh you daven more or whatever it is like that we make people think that like that's what Hashem wants that's why you don't have a kid because Hashem wants to hear from you and that's the narrative we kind of learn. like Hashem wanted their Tfilo, right that's what Rashi says but right. like no offense Rashi like I don't like that interpretation. like you know, there's lots of people that have babies and like what. So Hashem didn't want to hear from from you next door, but, you know, because you had kids easily. He doesn't care about you. I'd rather not be special then. Thank you. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't want that. That Hashem wants to hear from me so that I have to struggle. So I don't, I don't love that narrative, and I like to stay away from it because I just think it's not healthy in terms of religious practice, religious view, spirituality. I think it makes people feel disconnected. For sure. Um,
0: And, you know, I feel like this response is very common amongst people who do have it easier. So, you know, you have a lot of like yentas in the community who go up to couples who don't have any children or who, let's say they just had a child and four months later, they're like, come on, it's time. Second one. Let's go. Let's go. What are you waiting for? And oftentimes like, you know, they don't understand that maybe they don't want another child right now, or maybe they're struggling. This is not up to them, you know? And oftentimes you hear people giving advice, you know, you should be praying more. So that, or do this segula or that one, like everyone thinks they know the answer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how can people be more educated and not, Mm -hmm. you know, Make stupid remarks to people. Like, I just feel like people don't understand that what they're saying is totally ignorant.
1: Right. I think that kind of goes into like, kind of ties into that like toxic positivity that I was talking about on my page recently. Yeah. Is like, people come, people, when people, when someone experiences negative emotions, toxic positivity is. Like when someone comes and like, Hashem has a plan. So yeah. right they shut down any negative emotions, like by like kind of silver lining, putting something beautiful on top of it, because they don't, they don't want you to feel sad or uncomfortable. So I think that that's like a, that's important that we kind of like recognize that we are so uncomfortable with people's pain and sadness. We love joy. We love positivity. We love happiness. But when someone's sad or struggling or depressed or suicidal mm-hmm. or what? we, oh my God, get away, I can't, I don't want to talk to, I can't, we stay away from them. It makes us yeah. so uncomfortable. It makes us so sad. It makes us, we can't sit with it. And I think that's where it comes from. Like when people see someone who's struggling, instead of just saying like, I'm so sorry, and that must be so hard, or just not saying anything because maybe you don't know for sure, but just saying, I'm going to have her in mind when I dive and like that everything should be okay and everything in the right time, you know, instead of just doing that, we have to like go in and fix let me give you advice let me tell you this thing that's based on zero medical scientific evidence like nothing you know old wives tale or whatever let me tell you this this is what you should do or let me tell you that or let me and we feel like we have to like offer this advice to make it better but all you do is make yourself feel better you feel like you put a band-aid on it but yeah. you really just like hurt that person you know
0: Right. So I think it's
1: important to recognize, like, we don't need to fix their sadness, we don't need to fix their feelings, we don't need to give them advice, we're not doctors, like you're not telling them anything they haven't heard of. Um, so I would say, instead, just say to them, I'm so sorry for your struggle. You know, if they confide in you, if they tell you that there is something going on. Otherwise, I always say people's family planning and their fertility is not your business. It's just mm-hmm. not. Don't talk about it. Don't ask about it. Don't talk. When are you going to have another one? It's not appropriate. You know, why'd you wait so long? Not appropriate.
0: what, oh, a, what of, are a beautiful, you
1: done? are you, is this it? Are you finished? Are you or, you or they say, maybe, maybe you should be done, right? Like not appropriate. <laughs> you just, you don't have the right to comment on people's families. You don't. And, and their spacing of children. And, and people would say to me, like, my girls are five years apart, my first and second. And they'd be like, wow, that was so smart. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't a choice. I don't know I don't if I could have had them closer in age, I would have. Like, it has nothing to do with my genius, you know? Like, yeah, thanks, I'm smart, I guess, you know, but this has nothing to do with it, you know? So, yeah, that's not a compliment and it hurts. Like, it would just be another like reminder of like, oh, like, okay, they are five years apart and it, it ends up being beautiful and great and wonderful, but that's not what I had wanted. I wanted kids that were closer in age and I didn't get to have that. That wasn't, you know? So, that's like a hurtful comment don't say that oh it's so smart really okay thank you like <laughs>
0: yeah
1: you know so you. those just aren't nice comments like speaking about age gaps and how many kids and how few kids and just don't ask that you what's know?
0: the best thing how many years is the best age difference right the kids like yeah yeah
1: yeah it's and and honestly it doesn't make a difference you know people are like oh if you have this many years and that many years they'll be closer they'll be this they'll be that there's it it, that has nothing to do with it it's all about the dynamic in your family and what what you instill in your kids about their relationships and how you create a closeness and a camaraderie and a friendship between them it doesn't they could be 10 years apart they could be two years apart it doesn't matter you know you could be two years apart and be best friends you could be two years apart and enemies like that doesn't you know, and I'm sure people know families like that, that are super close in age, and they all hate each other, or super close, and they love each other, or exactly. years apart, and they're best friends, They're, you know, my sisters are the oldest in my family, I'm, like, one of the youngest, there's six of us, and we're eight years apart, we're, like, my sisters are my best friends, you know, really? my sisters awesome. are twins, they're the oldest, and I'm one of the youngest, so there was eight years between us, so, like, they were 18, I was 10 years old, I was a baby, but as I got older, like, we just got closer, yeah, so it doesn't have anything to do with age, like, just what's the culture in your family like does you know is it instilled in you that you should be close and want to do things together and you know
0: right so so Rachel when when someone is struggling with infertility I mean when do they how do they know that they're actually struggling with infertility and could there be like other reasons why women might not be getting pregnant you know as a college teacher I find that oftentimes a woman is having a difficult time getting pregnant. And then I find out later on that maybe she's not checking properly, or she's not doing it at the, the day that she's supposed to, and she goes to the mikveh at a later time. So it could really be that the reason she's not getting pregnant is because of halachic infertility. Or right. what are some other reasons why a woman might not be getting pregnant? And is that also a reason why she might not be getting pregnant?
1: Right. So halachic infertility is when a woman is going to the mikvah, like she's ovulating before she goes to the mikvah. So sometimes that happens because you're generally you're scheduled to go to the mikvah around like day twelve of your cycle, but some women will be ovulating day ten or day eight, like their ovulation cycles are not, you know, day fourteen, day fifteen, whatever it is. Usually you ovulate within a couple of days after you go to the mikvah for most cycles, but a lot of women don't. They ovulate much later, earlier. So the Cure for that generally is like you'll go to a, a reproductive endocrinologist, a fertility specialist, and they can delay your ovulation through like an oral medication they can give you that can help that. Um, but other reasons women can be experiencing infertility could be male factor, right? I think a lot of the time we just assume it's the woman, that, that there's something with her. It could be a, a, a male issue. So your husband should also get checked. If you've gotten checked out and you've done all your blood work and your hormone levels are normal and you're not smoking and, you know, you lead a healthy lifestyle, you're not taking any medications that could be impacting your, your fertility. PCOS is a big one. Also, if you have PCOS, that could impact your fertility, not necessarily, but it could polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that's important to know, you know, because you could be not ovulating at all. um, If you have PCOS that's even if you're getting your period, you might not be ovulating. So that's important to know. I feel like one um, in every four
0: women have PCOS. I feel like I read that somewhere.
1: So it's a very common diagnosis. Um, and it could impact your fertility. If you have PCOS, I don't want you to think like, oh, I'll never have children. That's not necessarily the case. But there, there is sometimes, you know, um, a, there is a there can be issues where women have PCOS and there are fertility-related issues. So if you have it and you're not getting pregnant, definitely check that out and find out you might not be ovulating. Right. Um, but yeah, there could be again male factor. Like that's important to know. Also, um, don't take for granted that it's just you. Like he should also get a, a checkup and make sure that his hormone levels are normal and that you know his sperm production is is you know present and and happening. Um, so those are some other possibilities you know but that's why like a workup is always good so generally they say after a year of actively trying right so that means like you've actively been trying to have a baby for 12 months if nothing's happening you should see a a doctor Um, and by they say 35 after six months like you shouldn't wait a year so I always err on the side of caution and I always say like if you're getting super stressed out by six months, you know, and you're in your, let's say later twenties, I would say like, it doesn't hurt. You could go, you don't have to wait a year. They might say to you, you know, come back two months, but it's always good to be proactive, you know? Yeah. So for me, I always say like, if you feel at six months, like nothing's happening, what's up, go see a specialist, go get some blood work done, get a workup see what's up. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit more, you know, proactive about these things.
0: For sure but sometimes i find that a lot of girls especially even young girls like there's this whole rush to get pregnant i mean especially in the safari community i don't know mm-hmm. about how it is in the ashkenazi community but in the community that i i'm part of you know there's always a rush to get to the next milestone so like once you're dating whoa newt what are you getting engaged and then when you're engaged when are you getting married once you're getting married the question is Nope, when are you gonna have a baby? So right. there's this pressure to mm-hmm. you know, keep up with your friends and have a baby right away. And I find that a lot of girls, even especially young girls, they'll yeah. rush to like a specialist or a reproductive endocrinologist, like even like three months after their wedding when they see like nothing right. happening. So would right. you say like before rushing to a doctor, a specialist, that they check that they're actually doing everything right in terms of like, I mean, yeah.
1: So I I go to your regular OB, right. Your OBGYN and they can do some of like the preliminary stuff. I think after three months, that's a little silly, like calm down, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, you only have, like, a 25% chance of, of conceiving every month, which makes the makes the whole idea of even conceiving naturally, like, really, that's, like, the NACE, you know, like, not, like, an IVF baby, of course, like, it's amazing and incredible, but I feel like the real NACE is when you conceive naturally, because the chances are so low, it's yeah. really unbelievable that, you know, that that, that that, that even happens scientifically, so I would say three months, like, Relax. And if you're young, chill, you know, like it's okay. And if you're healthy and you know that you don't have any issues that might be getting in the way, fine, you know. Um, again, but if you know that you do have things that might impact that, then, you know, you should talk to your doctor and let them know that that could be something that, you know, worries you that it might be getting in the way. But if otherwise, like, there's nothing going on for you, then relax, you know, six months, a year, if you're in your young 20s, for sure, a year. Um, And then from there, see what's up. But I think that pressure is, like, that's something that that everybody needs to, like, think about and talk about and say, like, pressures are always out there to be or to do or to have or to whatever it is. And I think that we need to, like, use our heads a little bit and say, like, but is this healthy for me? And is this what I need right now? And, like, why do I feel like I need to cave to this pressure and have what they have and meet the expectations that people are putting on me? Is that what's best for me? Could it be that can I just like enjoy my marriage, like child free for six months or a year or whatever it is? Like, so it's not happening right now. Let me just take the time to like, you know, enjoy our freedom until you know, because when babies come around, like a lot of that is taken away and you don't have that quiet and that you know you can just go anywhere and do and you know then you're responsible for someone else and there's someone else to think about and someone you know you need a babysitter and you need this and you're bound to their schedules and. Can I change my perspective from, oh my God, I need to, because my friend is pregnant and her sister is pregnant and I'm to you know what, it's not happening right now. Like, let me just focus on being present and working on my relationship with my husband and building it up before we introduce someone else into, into our dynamic, you know, because it will be challenging, you know, newborns are challenging. Let me make sure that we have a good foundation, you know, before we start bringing in other people.
0: For sure for sure and i find that also when people are trying and trying and trying to have a baby it does have an impact on their intimate life and intimacy just becomes this like dry like very bland like let's just get this over with we're just doing this to have a baby and yeah yeah so
1: yeah and you and and one partner or the other or both just feel like used like machines you know like I'm just like a receptacle or I'm just like a, you know, you're just taking from me and like, there's no connection there. And that's like a very sad space to be. And that's where I say like, you need to take a step back and say like, what am I doing here? What's so important to me? You know, like yeah, why okay. am I letting it get to this place where it's like, I don't even care anymore about my spouse and, and our time together and our sexual relationship that it's just about like quick, quick, I'm ovulating, hurry fast. You know, like yeah. why why is it becoming that where am i losing track of things yeah and i and and it does happen a lot and if this has happened to you like if you're in that infertility world and it's happened to you like it's so common it's so normal like that happens it's part it's part of the process like yeah. of going through this hell like that ha- it, it's so common but then i say take a step back and say like okay like we we've reached this like really yucky level in, yeah. in this infertility hell And we need to, like, step back and, like, reevaluate, you know?
0: Sure. Rachel, can you tell us some other misconceptions that people have about infertility or fertility?
1: So I think, like, the most common ones are, like, people are, like, go on vacation. If you go on vacation, then you'll get pregnant. If you just relax, you'll get pregnant. Or have wine. Right? Have wine. Or, you know, just relax and whatever. And I always say, like, I feel it's like that it's just such bad advice because if stress were like the, the thing that impacts our fertility, like we would have like nobody on this planet, you know, if that were the thing that was affecting, you know, everyone's ability to get pregnant, like we wouldn't have the population that we have in this world. There's nobody that's immune from stress. We all have stressful lives. Think about your own lives and how much stress you guys deal with. And like, if you haven't had issues with fertility, you can realize like, that's such a silly thing to say, you know, like, oh, if you just relax, like really? Okay. has your life and you have kids? Cool. You know? So that's, I think one of the most common things. And again, that's something that's not helpful. You can't. I mean, can I to, comment oh, on that? Sorry. Yeah.
0: I just hear it so often from people who did struggle with infertility where like, they couldn't get pregnant for five years, 10 years. And they're like stressed out with all the cycles and the injections that they had to do. And then finally, when the doctor said like, listen, there's nothing we can do, you know, that's it. And I just hear it so many times that like the moment they gave up, that's when they were able to conceive because like, I don't know, they released tension and then like they went out one night and they had wine and that's it. They got relaxed. So like people do present this story to others in order to encourage people. So, I
1: mean, it's a nice story, you know, and (laughs) I've heard it before, but I always say like, stress does not cause infertility. Infertility causes stress. We know that, that we can prove scientifically. Infertility causes stress. And I'm someone who likes to see, like I want, show me the evidence. Otherwise, like, I don't believe you. So we know that infertility causes stress. We don't know that stress causes infertility. What we do know though, is that sometimes when people are getting super stressed out during fertility struggles. Sometimes they'll engage in behaviors that will impact their fertility. So they oh. might start smoking, they might start drinking or using drugs, God forbid. They might even drop out of treatment. So, like, they don't go back for, you know, any more cycles or they don't take the fertility medications anymore or they stop having sex because they, they can't stand it anymore. It's a chore, it's hell for them. So, that will impact their fertility. That's how stress will impact it because it'll cause them to engage in behaviors that will. Affect their fertility. But, you know, to hear those stories, it, it's so nice. Like, oh, you relaxed and then it happened for you. But, like, that's such a small percentage. And that's not, that's not, be, there's no science to show us, like, that's what it was that changed for you, mm. you know? And just like we know that fertility can change, that I can have a child naturally and then suddenly I can't. We don't know what it is in our body that this month my body produced a good egg and the sperm was strong and they met up and it implanted and it grew. Wow. We don't know what what makes our body, what creates the conditions for our body to ovulate whatever it needs to ovulate in the time that it should and you know what I mean? There's so and again that's why I say to conceive naturally, that's the nace, that's the miracle for you to conceive naturally with all the factors that have to come into play. And then, you know, not not only for the sperm and the egg to meet, but then for it to for it to implant into your uterus and then for it to grow and to be a healthy baby, like it's such a NACE. We don't understand, we take for granted what it takes. Sure. You know, to to see IVF in a lab, they took my embryo, you know, they, they took the egg, they took the sperm, they put it together. It was an embryo. They put it inside, you know, like the growth is still incredible. But like, I was like, okay, they did all the hard stuff, you know, like, wow, that it's still incredible, but it's not, I was like, it's amazing that our bodies do this on their own. Like this is happening in a lab, but our bodies do this on their own. It's so incredible. So I think that we have to like have that appreciation and it's not as simple as like, Oh, I just relaxed. And then it happened. Like that's, right. that's not how it works. So when people tell you that story, you could say, wow, that's so great that it happened for you, but it shouldn't create a shame. Like, shoot, I'm too stressed out. And maybe I need to like go to the Bahamas for winter vacation and even like, more get some of wine. And yeah, yeah. And then there's so much pressure on you. And then, you know, like, so that's a lovely story and great. And I'm so happy that you had that wonderful ending But that's not necessarily the case for other, for most people, you know, so stress is never a good thing. We should always try to reduce our stress, of course, but I don't want people to think, well, I'm not pregnant because my life is too stressful. Like, if you want to, again, try to reduce your stress, please do it. It's helpful for you on every level, not just your fertility, for your health in general, you know, reducing stress is so important. But don't blame yourself. Like, oh, my life is too much. And that's why I don't have a kid. Like, if I could just relax, then it would happen. Not necessarily you know?
0: Okay. Very interesting point. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So, but what about yeah. women who are single and yes. they're in their thirties and you know how they say the biological clock is ticking at 35, right? Yeah. Yep. What can women who are single, what can they do to invest in their future or to preserve their fertility?
1: Okay. I love this question and it's so important. And I really, really advocate a lot for egg freezing. So if you're not even in your 30s, if you're 27, 28 years old, and you're not married yet, and you're not dating anyone seriously, and there's really like nothing on the horizon, I would say start looking into egg freezing. And there are clinics now that do it that they make it affordable. There's, there's payment plans, extend fertility. And I know both the two of the doctors who work there who I know personally who are incredible, honest, professional, amazing people like they are friends of mine. Hacheva Hacheva Maslow. Maslow, yeah, And Josh Klein.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Amazing, amazing, amazing people. Um, so they offer a payment plan to help it, you know, to help you make it more affordable. But I would say egg freezing, it's insurance. It's life insurance. It's the responsible thing to do. Buying life insurance doesn't mean that you think you're going to die at 30 years old. It just means you're saying, listen, I have a family or I have people that if I'm not here, I need to know they're taken care of, like just in case, because we know we do not have control over life. We do the responsible thing and we invest in life insurance and we make sure they're taken care of. So, right. So I think that they should, so egg freezing I think is an amazing investment. I think it's, like I said, like life insurance, it's just the responsible thing to do. You may never even end up using the eggs, you know, let's say you get married and you, you don't have to run to do IVF right away or, you know, you could try to conceive naturally. And if it doesn't work, then you know, you have this backup plan, you know, that you guys can, do a frozen cycle again it's cheaper because the eggs are already frozen so it's just a a transfer of a frozen egg and you know and and you know creating an embryo and then you reduce all that stress of going through infertility also so it's it's really like an insurance plan for you to make sure that things are just set up for you and that you don't have to stress like oh my god forget it I'm just marrying the next guy I meet because I'm 33 and I'm scared I'm never gonna have kids then you don't have to feel that pressure of like you need to just take whatever you get because you're getting older you can really wait to find the person that makes the most sense for you it takes that stress off your back of that biological clock and then when everyone nudges you well you're getting older you're not going to be able to have a family you say hey throw was mags like i'm good you know like this is not you know
0: this is a very not, I mean, controversial and something that is not spoken about. I, I don't think the single girls in my community, I don't think a lot of them have even heard of it, unfortunately. Oh, wow.
1: Right. It's so I would love, that's hopefully they're about. hearing about it now then. So yeah. it's so important. I would tell them like follow, um, extend fertility has like, I mean, that's, that's really what they started out as. You can follow them on Instagram and any questions you might have, they, they talk about what the process is and what it involves and what it means. But it's it's really the most important thing you can do for your future. If you are an older single and you are nervous that your you know window is closing, especially if you have, let's say, PCOS or something that might compromise your fertility, you want to just do the responsible thing and just you know, go in for a consult, even a consultation. It's free. Go in for a. Con- I sound like I'm plugging extends. Like they did not pay me for this at all. It's just I trust them so much, and I know they're so amazing. And it's not even the practice that I went to to have my babies. You know, but happens to be that Josh worked at the practice at the time that I was at. So I really know him as a doctor, but also as a friend. But um, you can have a free consultation with them. They explain everything to you. They, you know, they'll talk to you about why it's important and how it could be helpful to you. Um, and I really think this is something that that older singles should think about because I have you know seen situations where an older single got married and then they couldn't have kids and then they had to go through that struggle and you don't want that if you don't have to have that if you can you know kind of protect yourself to know that like okay I'm older and and you know I, I'm I want to get married and I want to have a family you're kind of making it easier for yourself that you could still have that family you know because you've been proactive about making sure that you have something kind of in your back pocket to make it possible because our eggs age the quality gets less and less starting even at 27 years old the the quality of our eggs starts to decline so when you're 35 years old you have fewer eggs and lower quality so your chances of getting pregnant are diminishing with each year you know so freezing them between 27, 30 years old, like that's really the optimal time. You know, if you're 32, don't freak out. You can still do it, you know, but it's something to look into. If this is the first time you're hearing about it, look into it. It's important.
0: Yeah. And it's just I do a responsible
1: think thing to do for your future.
0: hundred percent. So Rachel, can you give a message of hope to our listeners of, you know, if there is a girl who is single, who's, you know, 28 and up, or Mm -hmm. women who are experiencing infertility at the moment can you give a message of hope to them
1: so I mean if you're single and you want to get married and you want to have a family um, I would say like you have to just kind of I would say keep the focus on living your life right now and doing whatever it is you need to do to be happy and to be your best person and Hopefully, you know, when that time comes and that right person comes along, then, you know, everything should go smoothly and be well. And I would say, think about, you know, ways to make it a a seamless transition and easy for you. And again, like I would think about that egg freezing um, because you don't want fertility to be an issue for you. And if you're going through infertility now, all I would say to you is that um, kind of like not blaming yourself. I guess the most important things are not blaming yourself. You did not do this to yourself. Um, reaching out and getting support is so important find one person someone that you can talk to and share and just again someone that can kind of carry the load with you um, maybe they're going through it and don't take for granted also you know that maybe there's someone who has primary infertility they have no kids at all they might still connect with you one, the person that I was closest to during my struggle was a friend of mine who had no kids for 10 years And we went through the struggle together and then she had a baby. She went through IVF and had a a baby and thank God, you know, she's like this adorable, cute little girl now. Mm -hmm. Um, But we shared so much of our struggle was similar. I had, and, and she didn't, and she wasn't like, what are you complaining about? Like, we really had so much in common. And she said, she's like, I never thought that I would feel like it's the same thing, but so much of it is the same, you know? for sure connect with someone who's going through infertility don't just assume well she has no kids so she's not going to want to talk to me you never know so find that support network share the load with someone again making sure that they'll keep it private and self-care taking care of yourself setting up boundaries if you don't want to see that relative that always says something to you don't go you know if you don't want to deal with the comments or whatever take time for yourself spend a little less time there whatever it is that's that's really what's going to get you through the struggle like we can't Change when you have a baby and if you have a baby, but we can change what happens while you're in that hell, you know? Yeah. So just taking care of yourself and focusing on what you need to stay sane is really what's key.
0: Amazing. Rachel, you have been extraordinary today.
1: Thank Thank you so much for having me.
0: Of course. Thank you for educating us, for inspiring us, for empowering us with your knowledge, your wisdom, your expertise and your background thank you, I, thank you. I really i really thank you for doing this for not only for me but for all those who are listening and can you tell people where they can find you
1: yes you can find me on instagram rachel tuckman lmhc that's my account you can find me i'm also on facebook just look up my name also rachel tuckman not as active there but similar yeah. content <laughs> to what i do on instagram um i'm in the five towns i am accepting clients during the daytime only my evenings are full right now but i have a couple of daytime slots if you wanted to come in for a session you can you know see me there um and that's it and awesome hopefully you guys will connect with me and be in touch
0: thank you so much rachel thank you okay
1: bye okay bye
0: you enjoy this podcast and you want to hear more Soul Sessions, you can go on SinaiRadio.com or type in Sinai Radio on all major podcast players and you can see a whole bunch of other Soul Sessions. And if you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at Soul Train KK. Have a wonderful day.